Hello, Hooray for Monday listeners. My name is Jenna Fornell. I'm the Director of Teaching and Learning at Center for Inspired Teaching. And as I shared last week, for the next few days, I'm stepping into Aletta's shoes to host the podcast. We're sharing stories of some of the inspired teachers we've come to know over the years in the hopes their stories intrigue you in the way that they have intrigued us. Today, you'll hear my interview with Colsom Omer, a teacher who I got to know when she taught my children for six years at the Montessori School of Alexandria. I learned from watching her approach in the classroom that observation can be one of the most powerful tools a teacher uses to guide and inspire their students. And in this interview, I asked her about how she exercised her powers of observation to make her classroom the magical place it was. Unfortunately, my dogs chimed in on the audio recording, so the sound quality is a little off, but I think you'll enjoy what Colson has to say, even with that background noise. Without further ado, here is our conversation. My name is Kulsum Omar, and I have been a Montessori teacher for over three decades now, just recently retired. I have also been teacher educator at the Houston Montessori Center for like 15 to 20 years. When I took my training and I was learning the Montessori philosophy, one of her quotes was, follow the child. So as I studied her philosophy, I realized that observation was such a big part of it because you followed the child by observing their developmental needs academically, socially, emotionally, intellectually. One thing that that I noticed in your classroom whenever I would come visit was that if, if people have never been in a Montessori classroom before, this can be hard to picture, but you come in And students are doing different things in different places in the room all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So except for circle time, students are working very independently in different places. And then you're going to each student, each small group of students and and sitting with them and observing and offering the feedback. How do you get to a place where you're able to do that, where it's not it's it's not chaotic? That's a really good question, because Mm -hmm. we have a lot of parents who walk in and go, this is like a little workshop. Mm -hmm. What happened here? Mm There is so much planning that goes into it. It seems effortless, but it, it's pre-planned. What you observe when you walked in and what mm-hmm. other parents observe is called a normalized classroom. We set up what we call, what Maria Montessori called the prepared environment. She said, prepare the environment and the child will learn because children absorb from their surroundings. They are naturally curious. They are observant. They hear things, they see things, and they just take it all in. So we set up our environment very logically, very well thought out. Uh, The Montessori classroom is divided into areas of practical life, sensorial, math, language, geography, science, art, but every single area, the materials are sequential. Because Mm -hmm. in our classrooms, we have multi-age grouping, which means I could get a child at age three who will not leave me till they're age six. So this prepared environment, which is so sequential, has to go, has to serve the child from ages three to six. So we have levels of difficulty from the simplest to the most difficult. Another way is having consistent ground rules. At the very beginning of the school year, 
the children are given lessons on very basic things. How do you roll a rug? Whenever you take out something, you always put it away before you get out another piece of work. We use quiet voices inside. We use quiet feet inside. Respect, respect for the environment, respect for each other, respect for the adult, the teacher respecting the children. We practice this, we model it, and we just keep doing it every day. It becomes a habit for the children. Well, and it's interesting how doing that work, creating that foundation, mm -hmm. actually gives you as the teacher the space to be able to focus on observation because you're not managing 25 individual students. Absolutely. They're starting to manage themselves. You brought up a very important point about self-management. Isn't that a life skill? <laughs> They're going to take this with them all their lives. Self-management. You know how many adults there are that cannot self-manage? So what an important skill to learn at a young age. And it's also the intrinsic joy of the work that they do. So when you walk in and you see them all working, they actually get joy out of it. They will do it and they'll say, I did it myself. We do not give out stickers. We do not give grades. That's all extrinsic. When that gets taken away, does their motivation get taken away? Something to think about. So we want them to be self-motivated. Can you share examples of where observation led to feedback that helped your students take the next learning step? Sometimes I just watch a child. They go and take out something that's difficult. I see after a while they get frustrated, they just put it away. Now, if they don't, then it's my job to make that note and say they really wanted to do this. How can I get them there? So tomorrow, let me give a lesson on this so they can get ready for that. When we are observing the students in the classroom, it's not always just academic. You start seeing behaviors. That's very important feedback for us as teachers. What to do with it and why is this happening? Or what kind of support can we get this child? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, then we have to reach out to the parents because we work as a team. I did notice um, one time a little boy who loved practical life and he was doing so many things. But I noticed that every time he made a spill, he had this look of horror on his face. It was like, I could tell, I could read on his face. It was like, I'm going to get in trouble. Somebody's going to shout at me, you know. So first I thought, oh, he's new in the classroom. So I went over and I showed him how to clean up his spill. I said, oh, you know, in the classroom when you have a spill, I can show you how to clean it up. He was like relieved. And then I saw this happen a few other times with him, but I just made a note of it. And then when I had parent conference, I just brought it up casually to the parent. And I said, you know, he's doing really a great job. He loves practical life. She said, he comes home and he talks about it. And I said, the only thing I've noticed is this. And I was wondering, like, does he get like that about making mistakes? He doesn't want to make, maybe he's a perfectionist. He mm -hmm. doesn't want to make a mistake. And she said, you know, my husband gets quite upset when there are spills or something happens. And uh, so I think he was thinking that, you know, you might get upset or something. I said, well, that makes sense. 
And I said, let me just tell you what we do in the classroom when children have spills. We teach them how to clean it up because we focus on independence. So I told her that she could set up if it was water, if he's pouring his own juice, for example, she could have a little bowl with a sponge. And that's what I did at the sink in my classroom. So at lunchtime or whatever they had to spill, they just had to go get it. They brought the sponge in the bowl. So if it's juice and they sponge it, they squeeze it into the bowl. Then they use it again. We can also give tools to parents to do at home, which will, instead of hurting the child's self-esteem will build it mm -hmm. and make them feel better about themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, something that's emerging for me is the beautiful role that respect and, and also sort of trust plays, that you are trusting the process with your students and that mutual respect for one another creates a space where they're able to spill things and able to have confidence in their ability to be someone who can clean it up after that. And part of that has to be, not only are you doing those observations, but they're building their own observation skills and being able to see themselves grow. Exactly. So do you have some examples of that? Yes, actually, they make discoveries. They make their own discoveries. When they pin punch, we call it perforating or pin punching. And this is to develop fine motor skills in the classroom. It's a little, I guess it looks like a pen, but it has a handle. And first we start with very simple shapes for the children, maybe like a circle or something, a familiar thing that they used to doing. Pin punches are like close together like this, because the goal is to go around the whole circle and be able to just perforate it out of that and you get a perfect circle. When I give that lesson to a young child, they might do just a few Sometimes, very often actually, the pin punches are everywhere. They're not even on a line. They're just everywhere. And I know it's the three-year-old work, you know, and I've told many of my assistants, it's okay to send this home. This is their work. And this is where they are at now. You know, I've also encouraged them to observe and watch what happens by the end of the year. It's amazing because slowly they start learning how to do it on the line. They'll come to me while I'm giving a lesson from across the way and say, look, Miss Omar, I'm almost done. I can see it. So that's all self-assessment. So I think they start assessing themselves and I see them correct their work. Like they lay out things on a rug and they'll come and tap me to come and check their work. And suddenly when they're walking up with me, they say, oh no, I put that number backwards and they'll turn it over. You have a, a deep and abiding respect for children and what they're capable of. Listeners may not quite understand, like a pin punch is an actual pin. You're not having it them is. work with something that's dull. They're actually working with something sharp enough that they could poke themselves or somebody Absolutely. else. But you trust them enough and and the learning enough to say they're capable of working with this that's part of our ground rules when we give those lessons and we normalize the classroom we are very specific about what is safe and what is not safe mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then if it's safe of course we give them lessons on how i have had children they take the pen punch and they will scratch the wall or they'll stick it into the wood shelf I've had children do that over the years. 
But then what do we do? We always give them that opportunity to come back because we don't want to be punitive. And why? Why? Because do we want to break the child's self-esteem? It's like, I did something bad. I need to go sit in a corner or I need to be punished. That's not, we are building self-esteem. We want children who are growing up to be independent, confident, the ability to make choices, to have respect for each other. And why did they do that? That's the other thing about the observation. I come back to that. What did I observe when I saw that happen? Did I observe a child just trying to be bad and do this? No, the child was curious. It was like, let me see what happens when I stick it into the shelf. And if it doesn't come back out, they get scared because they're like, oh gosh, now I have to tell the teacher because, you know, I did it. So the consequences, they're already, because mm -hmm. they're already worried about it, you know, and, and tears and they're like, I did this, you know. And say, well, was that a good choice? So this is why I told you to use it on the paper. So next time, where will you use it? This is a life lesson they're learning. What brought you the most joy as a teacher? Well, I have to say unequivocally the children. It's seeing the children's bright faces in the morning. And I mean, there are days that I'm very tired and, uh, you know, I may not have had that great a day. But when I walk into the classroom, I just feel like the energy of the children gives me joy. Just they look at the world like with awe and wonder. And they find joy in little things and just watching that. And I feel very gifted that I had the opportunity to do something in my life that I enjoyed and loved and had the joy and love of children. It's a very special gift. This is Jenna again. For the record, having Colsom as a teacher was a gift for her students and their families too. I encourage you to check out this week's digital issue of Hooray for Monday that includes three ways to cultivate intrinsic joy in your classroom. And if you didn't get to browse our brand new booklet of 20 engaging ways to end the school day, you'll find a link there and in the notes for this podcast. Finally, are you struggling to connect with some of your students? Is your classroom culture not quite where you want it? Join us in November for our institutes focused on meeting the social and emotional need for mutual respect. Mutual respect is not a luxury, it's a genuine human need. And in this fun, innovative, and interactive professional learning experience, you'll develop concrete strategies for centering mutual respect in your practice through both classroom management and academic instruction. Our in-person session is on Saturday, November 5th, starting at 11.30 at the National Portrait Gallery here in Washington, D.C., if you're not in the D.C. area or not able to join us in person, you can join us online on Wednesday, November 9th at 7 p.m. Visit our website, inspiredteaching.org, to learn more. Thank you for sharing this time with us. May your week bring many opportunities for observation and wonder.